by Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. We have a a very exciting guest on the show today, and he has called some of the biggest games that you can call. Brian Barnhart, he is the voice of the Illinois University football and basketball teams. And Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Logan. How are you doing? Well, I just told you, and we'll start there. I spent uh, this from about 11 last night to 11 this morning on a bus ride home from Muskegon, Michigan, calling an indoor football game. And I know that you've been around the block a little bit, covered a lot of minor league baseball in your time. And I wanted to start off, do you have any crazy bus ride stories where everything went wrong? We'll just start off right there. Oh, yeah, I think everybody's had those at one point or another along the way, if you do it long enough. I remember one night we uh, took a bus. I think we were busing between Omaha, Nebraska, and Oklahoma City and are uh, in the middle of the night, and the bus broke down somewhere uh, near the Kansas state line. Uh, and during the course of that evening, we couldn't get another bus for several hours. So we basically were parked at a gas station somewhere near Kansas, and I remember um, just kind of sitting there in the middle of the night, uh, knowing where we're going to be able to get a, a new driver, a new bus for several hours, and so some of the ball players uh, had golf clubs with them, and so they just started uh, teeing off in the parking lot of the uh, gas station and just hitting balls as far as they could uh, into the night, and I don't know how many golf balls they went through, but they went through a lot. <laughs> what were they was there a field or something or were they hitting were they hitting buildings what was I, going on i think they were just hitting them into a into an open field and uh you know nearby it was out in the middle of kansas so it was uh, a lot of bean fields a lot of open field they hit it into in the dark so uh, i think they were just having some fun but yeah it was uh, something to pass the time anyway one of the things i've always found I don't know if interesting is the right word, but some people can be on a bus and be asleep in five minutes, and I know sometimes it takes me half the darn trip just to go to sleep, and it's never a real good deep sleep. Did you learn how to get good sleep on the bus? No, not really. Uh, I don't think I know if I ever did. Uh, you think of the amount of times I did it, um, I'd be able to figure it out. Now, I did uh, get smart after a while and start bringing a pillow, or a portable radio of some sort, and we're talking, you know, late 80s, early 90s. So we didn't have all the diversions you have now with cell phones and Internet and all of that uh, that you can take advantage of. So, you know, you, you try to entertain yourself on some of those bus rides, uh, overnight especially, uh, in different ways. But, you know, I, I also did some minor league hockey. So we had – and we were in an entirely bus league, and so – you know, riding the bus to, from Oklahoma City to Wichita to Memphis, you know, down to Dallas and Fort Worth. You find different ways to try to get yourself to fall asleep, but it's not always easy. Uh, but over time, you uh, sometimes you get so sleepy that you just fall asleep without realizing it. And let's get back to the 
the normal track that we're on on this podcast is one of the things I like to start just about every conversation with is just what was your first exposure to sports radio and play-by-play at the high school or college level where you kind of got the itch and started scratching it, so to speak? Well, I think where I got started was I was I went to, uh, I grew up in Champaign, Illinois, but I went to uh, Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, and was going to be a history teacher, but I had a, a roommate who uh, wanted to be a broadcast major, and his goal in life was to be the voice of the North Carolina Tar Heels, and of course, Woody Durham was still there and uh, was there until a few years ago, but um, his name was Mike, and he wanted, uh, he was my roommate, so we got together, he said, why don't you help me out on the on the basketball broadcast, uh, you know, for the women's team, we did some of those on our campus station. And I said, sure. So we practiced some. We just kind of sat up in the stands with back then a tape recorder and just, you know, people kind of looking funny at us, like, what are you guys doing? We just kind of practiced and did games together. And um, he did a lot of the play-by-play and I did a lot of the color. And uh, I got hooked immediately. I-, I loved it. I loved the enthusiasm of the crowd. I loved being able to describe uh, what was happening in front of us. And and so I kind of changed my career path at that point and said, hey, you know, I love history, but I think this is more interesting to me. And and as it turned out, I started doing a lot of uh, games for the campus station. And you have to understand, this is a much smaller school. It's not like Syracuse, where you basically have to try to get on the air and get a chance. Uh, if you wanted to do it, general manager of the station was like, hey, go for it. And so you got a lot of opportunities uh, to broadcast that maybe I wouldn't have gotten at a bigger school, and then and one thing led to another, and I just fell in love with it. With the background, you initially were interested in being a history teacher. Does that curiosity for what's happened in the past and the ability to research and dig that that requires, do you think that that is a pretty natural transition into play-by-play where research is so critical? Oh, probably. Yeah, there's probably something to that, that, you know, that you got to go back and look up a guy's stats, what he's done before, uh, where was he with a previous team, what was his average from, you know, maybe five years ago, or what are his numbers uh, in his course through the minor leagues. And I did everything from single-A baseball to triple-A baseball to major league baseball eventually. So um, I, I kind of was at all levels. But, yeah, going into the history of a team, going into the history of a franchise, a player, uh, there's probably a lot to that, and even the history of radio and television itself was fascinating. You know when it, how it started, the the early troubles they had, the, the lack of regulation early, and then eventually getting the AM and FM dials established, and then the birth of TV. And so there's just you know kind of a natural history, uh, historical uh, angle to that too, with radio and TV. And of course, I I lapped all that up, but not only being interested in. Uh, history itself, but but the history of radio and TV in this new profession that I had gotten myself into. So you went to Liberty University, you graduated from there, got a minor league baseball job in Lynchburg. What was the connection, and how did you end up getting that first break into the industry as a professional? Well, I was, uh, as I, you know, my friend and I kind of did... Um, did the broadcast uh, for the campus station for the women's games. And um, then eventually there was a local cable station in, and they were talking about the early days of cable here. We're talking mid eighties cable station in Lynchburg that said, Hey, we need uh, a couple of guys. If we can find them to announce 
some um, men's ba- basketball games um, on the cable channel, and we're not paying anything. But if you want the experience, and you know, Mike and I, we like signed up immediately. Like, sure, we'll do it. So that was a great experience for us through the Lynchburg uh, Cablevision outlet. And we're talking very bare bones operation. Maybe one camera, maybe two, with just a couple of mics and. And the rest was up to us. And so I don't know how high quality it was, but it was a great experience. You know, we got on TV. We took turns doing play-by-play. So then the Lynchburg uh, cable TV station, uh, my junior year, between my junior and senior year in in college, um, they were going to do some Lynchburg Met, which was the single-A team for the Mets at the time. And they said, hey, we're looking for a, a guy to do some TV for us. We pay 25 bucks a game. Uh, would you like to do it over the summer? And I was like, absolutely. Uh, and so Mike had gone back home. He didn't stay for the summer, my, my roommate. So I just, um, you know, took the opportunity and I did probably 10 or 15 games uh, that year. It was funny because um, in that particular year, Barry Bonds was still playing in Class A ball in Prince William County, Virginia. So I would see Barry Bonds Jr., you know, and different guys that you would see later in the in the major leagues for the Mets in particular uh, in some of those games uh, that I would call on TV. Well, then after that, I, I graduated uh, in May of 86, and the Mets were looking for uh, someone to uh, do play-by-play of probably 20 games for them the following year. They hired a full-time announcer. Uh, from Bakersfield, California, who became one of my best friends. His name was Frank Atkinson. And he was hired from California and came in, but they needed a number two guy. And they wanted somebody to play all the commercials when Frank would throw it to a break. And so they hired me to be back at the station because the problem they had had was that the the board operators uh, at the station there in, in Lynchburg either wouldn't be paying attention or you know, would walk out of the room and they would miss breaks and they wanted somebody from the team there representing the team running that board. So I ran the board for out of a 140 game schedule. I ran the board for probably 120 games. And then the other 20, I got to do radio and Frank, the new guy they hired went and did TV. So they hired me right out of college. Uh, they said, Hey, we, we liked your work with the cable TV and, and we'll bring you on board. So I had a, I had a job for uh, from like April 1st to September 1st, uh, $600 a month. And you're on your own after that. <laughs> that was the, that was the basic agreement. And, uh, so that was kind of my first, uh, Fourier into, into minor league baseball. So what else did you do to make a living and be able to make ends meet on $600 a month? I'm assuming you had work outside of the baseball team. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I started doing some uh, high school football in uh, Lynchburg. There was uh, it was a, a two big high schools. There was EC Glass High School and there was Heritage High School. And so I was hired by Heritage High School to do their games, again, for about $25 a game. Uh, so I'd have four games a month, uh, you know, in September and October. And so, you know, I made a little bit of money there. Um, I did some other work. I worked other jobs. I worked for a coffee shop delivering coffees. I it was just kind of made ends meet. Now, the good news was that first year uh, in Lynchburg, I had three other roommates. So we basically split. And you got to remember, this is mid-80s. I think the rent was 300 a month, and so we split it four ways. So it wasn't that expensive. Uh, you know, and I was making decent money uh, considering that I didn't have a whole lot of living expenses. 
uh, and a, maybe a student loan of 50 bucks a month to pay off. So I was making a little bit of money, but, you know, but I scrounged together some other work along the way. And that, uh, as you do at that age, you'll do about anything, you know, uh, in the broadcast world to, to get some experience and make a little money. And that's how I kind of scratched out a living there early. You know, I just find myself curious how a lot of your early, uh, kind of path down the play-by-play track was kind of parallel with your, I believe his your friend's name was Mike. And I'm just wondering if he ended mm-hmm. up in the business. Well, he sort of did. Yeah, he um, he wound up doing some TV work. In fact, he uh, did some TV work in, in Lynchburg on the local uh, TV station. He got hired for uh, weekend sports. And then a little bit during the day, he also got on the uh, Liberty University Flames, uh, radio network for a little bit, did some color on that. And then he eventually started up a move to Atlanta, Georgia, got married, and he eventually started up kind of a at the beginning of um, teleconferences for meetings. He got kind of hooked into that where, you know, people could video conference with each other. And then eventually he kind of looped back around and, and did some TV work for uh, the Liberty University Network. And now he's kind of their full-time TV uh, lead play-by-play guy. So he moved back to, to Lynchburg. And so, yes, he is in the business. I don't know if he's doing quite as many games as uh, I did over the years, but yes, he was, he was in the, um, in the field. And it's funny because his, the guy he really looked up to was Woody Durham. Of course, he's because he grew up in North Carolina. And when Illinois played in the championship game in basketball in 2005, we played North Carolina and Woody Durham was still doing the games in 2005. So uh, it was. I told Woody that story that we used to, Mike and I used to listen to his tapes just to get some ideas on, you know, technique and the way he called a game. And, and some of that still carries over to this day, some of the things I learned just by listening to him. Do you think that you would have gotten where you were if you didn't have kind of that, um, I don't know, that uh, partner in crime, so to speak? Oh, probably not. I think it was big that he, um, you know, he encouraged me to do it and and we became really good friends. And, um, I think he, his, uh, excitement about being in that industry carried over to me. And, and that's basically, I think without him, I probably would not have. Um, he also opened the door to, there was two stations at Liberty. There was the church station that was uh, call letters WRVL there 88.3 in Lynchburg and then there was the campus station that could only be heard on campus and so the campus station I referred to was what I did the the women's games on with Mike but eventually the general manager of that station we took a sports casting class with him and his name was Jerry Edwards and he did the play-by-play for Liberty up until about 10 years ago but he was the general manager of the of the church station uh the big uh, FM station and so he hired both of us to come on board with him at that station because he liked our work. We did some air shifts, uh, playing music, uh, you know, talking and doing all sorts of sports type programs for that for that station too. So we both, you know, parlayed the experience we got at the campus station to wind up on the other station and actually got paid, which was which was a change. So take us through the rest of your path through the minor league system up until you got your big break with the Anaheim Angels in, I believe, 1998. Yeah, I um, I got hired by the Angels in 1998. I actually, uh, out of Lynchburg, I uh, there was a team in Salem, Virginia, 
which was also in the in the Carolina League, same league, same level of play, which was a pretty good Class A league. It was a high level A league, unlike some of the maybe the Midwest League, which is a lower uh, level league. But there's some pretty good players that that came through there. But um, I got the job in Salem, Virginia, because they never had a radio broadcast. And they had talked, of course, being an hour away from Lynchburg, they worked pretty closely with the Lynchburg folks. And they said, hey, you know, we need a guy full time over here that could do all 140 games for us. And when uh, Salem called Lynchburg, Lynchburg said, hey, we got a guy that can do this for you. And, you know, he did about 20 games for us last year. And so they brought me over for an interview and uh, and hired me uh, shortly after that to become the uh, full-time radio voice for the, for the, what they were doing as the Salem Buccaneers that year. And so they were the pirate single a team. And so I uh, took over, became the first play-by-play voice for the uh, Salem Buccaneers in 1987 and, and did their games. And one of the guys I worked with, we had two guys, actually, we had a, a guy who was a pretty well-known basketball player from the area who still does games for CBS television during the tournament, Dan Bonner. Uh, he was my partner for home games, and I did all the road games by myself. So that was uh, that particular year. And then I, in the meantime, I sent out a lot of tapes to different uh, teams, major league, minor league, and so forth, and wound up sending some tapes to, to Oklahoma City, which was the AAA team for the Texas Rangers. And uh, they called me, I think, in October of 1987. And said, hey, we're interested in bringing you out here for an interview. Do you mind coming out? And I was like, absolutely. So they flew me out and actually hired me on the spot uh, after I went out there for about a day-long visit and moved to Oklahoma City in 1988. So that was the start of my AAA career. I made it to AAA, which is, of course, one step from the big leagues, which was very exciting for me. I was uh, I was afraid I might have to you know, spend a lot of years doing A-ball or double-A ball and Wound up in AAA. I think at the time I was the youngest AAA announcer in the country at like 23 years old. And there were some big names, you know, that were um, around still in AAA in that particular league. Uh, we crossed over a lot. We were in the American Association in Oklahoma City. We also played school or teams in the International League. And one of the guys out there was uh, in Durham was Gary Cohen, who, of course, has been with the Mets for a long time. And uh, there were some other guys in that league that, that moved up and uh, my friend Frank, who had been in Lynchburg with me, Frank Atkinson, he eventually became the same about a month after I got hired in Oklahoma City. He got hired by the Omaha Royals. So we went wound up in the same league, same division in AAA. So I did their games for several years and also in the process did uh, minor league hockey uh, in Oklahoma City. They had a, a kind of a double-A level minor league hockey team. I also... Uh, did high school basketball. There was a station in Shawnee, Oklahoma, that needed a play-by-play announcer for some high school games in Shawnee and different parts of the state of Oklahoma. And I uh, did some junior college basketball for them. I did uh, NAIA basketball for a couple of Division One powerhouses on radio and TV with Oklahoma Baptist University in Oklahoma City. Did their games in and around working for the Oklahoma City uh, AAA team. And in the meantime, I got hired to do some sports talk work in Oklahoma City at WWLS Radio down there uh, in Oklahoma City. And so I spent probably uh, about uh, not quite 10 years, probably eight or nine years up till about 1995, just doing all of those things, uh, AAA baseball during the summer, basketball during the winter, hockey during the winter, whatever I could come up with. 
to, you know, to make some money. And I was making more money by that time and, uh, you know, moving up the ladder a little bit. And then in uh, 1995, uh, the, the baseball uh, part of my life ended for a little bit. Uh, they didn't carry the games for a little while. So I went off and did some other things and talk show hosts and uh, did some other work. And then eventually got sent out some tapes, uh, both basketball and uh, um, baseball tapes. And the basketball tapes I wound up sending to the Dallas Mavericks. I wound up getting an interview. was a finalist for a play-by-play job with the Mavericks. I was got interviewed as a finalist for a job with the Texas Rangers. So I knew I was getting close. And then eventually in the spring of 1998, actually the winter of 1998, uh, the Angels called me, and, and they were interested in bringing me out for an interview. They had gotten a tape, and, and my first – thought was, I didn't say it, but my first thought is when they called, I, I'm thinking, what tape? I mean, I had sent so many tapes, I didn't remember even sending them one. Didn't even know they had an opening, and and then in uh, January of 1998, I got hired by the Angels. I was in spring training in February and, and did their games for, for two years, so uh, 98 and 1999 before eventually coming back to Champaign. Did you ever figure out where they did get that tape, or did somebody else send it to them? No, I sent it. I just didn't remember sending it. I, I, uh, I would, I would do what you'd call flood the zone. I'd send out a bunch. Uh, and to this day, I've got a stack of letters in a file of, you know, nice letters saying, Hey, we got your tape. We like your work. We don't have any openings. We'll keep you on file. You know, we like this. We don't have any openings. Good job, but we don't have anything. I mean, I got a whole stack of them because I just basically flooded the zone, but I did not remember sending one to Anaheim, but I obviously did because they, uh, I think they told me they they narrowed it down out of a field of about, I want to say, a couple hundred uh, tapes that they went through. And so I went out there for an interview, and they, uh, again, I've been fortunate. When I went out for these interviews, they hired me pretty much on the spot once the interview was done after an all-day session. Uh, I think they just wanted to make sure that who they were getting and, you know, the personality, and uh, they, they figured, I, I guess, that I could do it. It was just a matter of who was I as a person, and when they became satisfied with that, then they hired me. What do you think that you do so well in interviews that you obviously uh, leave such a good impression? Oh, I don't know. I think I'd just be myself. I'm just honest. You know, here's where I've been. Here's what I've done. I'm going to just try to be professional, you know, dress, dress up, be professional, uh, approach it the right way. Uh, you know, listen to what they have to say. And, you know, the whole time you're thinking, I'll take it, I'll take it, <laughs> you know, but you're trying not to oversell yourself either. Uh, Cause you know, you're excited about moving up the ladder, but I had had a lot of uh, time in between uh, having gotten the triple a job and then finally getting a major league job. It was, it was what a good 10 years or so between those events happening. And I had been close on two or three. So, I had a little practice going through the interview process with the Rangers and with the Mavericks. And so I kind of knew what kind of things I'd be asked. And by the third or fourth time I did it, I kind of got in the hang of what they were looking for and, and what, you know, uh, how to approach it. And I think that helped me the final time. So going through the minor league grind for 10 years, you're in a situation where you're pretty young. You're with a bunch of players when they're very, very young. You're spending lots of time on the bus, lots of time on the road. What are some – So it, it's a perfect spot for people to do silly pranks and uh, have some memorable nights out, so to speak. What are some of the uh, stories that you picked up uh, from minor league baseball? 
Oh, well, you're right. It's funny because you start out, you know, when I was just out of college, I was whatever, 21 years old, you know, and the players are either your age or younger. Uh, so it's kind of, you, you feel like kind of, um, a brother to them in a sense, because you're the same age. Now, as time went on, I got older and the players got younger, or stayed the same. So that, that has changed over time. But, um, you know, I wasn't one of those guys that went out and did a lot of stuff. I mean, I don't know if I've got any great stories for you as far as that goes. I can tell you funny things that guys used to do, you know, during the course of a season, you got to keep yourself loose. I mean, there's so many games there's 144 games every night. And, and unlike the major leagues where you get a scheduled day off every week, you might get five or six total days off during the whole summer for triple a baseball. So you got to do some, you know, some fun things. We had guys that were very good at uh, pranks on each other, or they would, um, you know, they might, uh, they might have a bus driver who was being very informative about, you know, instead of driving the bus, he would tell stories about what we were seeing along the roadway. And so we had a guy that would play along with him and ask him questions. And he'd have the guys in the back of the bus just rolling because he was asking off the wall questions and the, the poor driver wasn't anticipating or couldn't figure out what was happening. And, and so there were things like that that you remember that were pretty funny. Uh, there's just so many nights that you're on the road late or you're getting up early or, um, you know, with rookies, when they would first come up, you know, they might have to wear a dress or they might have to wear a, you know, this or that, you know, just kind of the hazing process. So it was, um, there's just a lot of funny stories like that over time, probably too numerous to go into here, but, but it was a great experience to, um, be around guys and get a feel for what it's like, uh, for them in the minor leagues. I mean, you know, and the stadiums have improved a lot. You got to realize now that minor league stadiums are great. I mean, they got good lighting fields are good, but back then, even then a lot of the fields weren't that great. I mean, the lighting wasn't good. The grounds wasn't maybe as good as some other places. And, so you'd get bad hops or you'd have uh, lose a ball in, you know, a lighting situation or, or whatever. And so you had to overcome a lot, uh, in the minor leagues too, unless you were a, a designated, uh, can't miss prospect. A lot of those guys, 90% of them, you know, this was as high as they were going to go. They weren't going to go any further. And so, you know, you had to stay loose and have some fun too. Did you build any relationships with players as they were coming up that, uh, were eventually advantageous to you when you were broadcasting in the bigs? Oh, yeah. I mean, you were, you would, you would run into guys. Uh, we had a guy named, uh, I'll just give you one example. There was a guy named Jeff Houston, uh, who played in the, in the major leagues a little bit for some various teams, Montreal and California and, and different stops. And he was a guy I knew in the minor leagues, um, even as far back as a ball, there was another guy named, um, Jeff King, who eventually made it to the major leagues who uh, played with the Pirates, who was a guy I knew in A-ball uh, that I met him. Uh, there was uh, a guy named Bill Sampin who wound up pitching in the major leagues for a few years who was with us in, Car- in the Carolina League. Uh, yeah, you, you would run into guys uh, back then that you would eventually see, and then when you saw them in Kansas City or saw them wherever, you're like, hey, you know, it was great to, to see them again. So, yeah, I even did that. It's funny, I even had that with umpires. Uh, because in the, in the low minor leagues, the umpires would show up whenever and they'd be, you know, there'd be like two umpires and they're working the game instead of four and they'd be rubbing up the baseballs and getting them ready. And so I'd go talk to them in the stands, you know, during batting practice or whatever. And 
even interviewed a few of them. One of them was Wally Bell, who's been an umpire forever uh, in the major leagues, you know, and we just talk about the game and I'd interview him a little bit because I was doing interviews every night and I needed the interviews and uh, umpires were available. And so those were kind of neat to um, meet guys like that and then see them eventually uh, break through at the major league level. And then when I was in Anaheim, I'd run across a few along the way. So when you were in Anaheim, obviously at that point, I'm sure you're thinking you have your dream job, but you only stayed there a couple of years. You were planning to go to Montreal and that fell through. What happened? Was that when they folded as a franchise? Well, almost, yeah. They. Uh, it was interesting because the gentleman I worked for in Oklahoma City had two different owners. They were Bing and Patty Hampton, uh, who hired me at the, at the time in 1988, and then they eventually sold the team to Jeffrey Loria, who's today, uh, well, he owned the Expos, then he sold it to Major League Baseball, and then he bought uh, the Florida Marlins from John Henry, I think, was all part of that swap that uh, Jeffrey wound up uh, owning the Marlins and still does. Now, there's talk he might be selling them at some point, but he was our owner in, in Oklahoma City. And so um, I kept in touch with him over the years, even after um, he eventually sold the team and and got out of uh, minor league baseball and got to the Expos, and, and I had a two-year contract with the Angels, and what we did in Anaheim was we had me and Mario and Pemba, who is currently, the, has been for the last, I don't know, 12 to 14 years, the TV voice for, for the Detroit Tigers uh, on Fox Sports Detroit, but he was my broadcast partner in Anaheim. And so the uh, two of us, the first year I was there, they wanted to broadcast like kind of the Dodgers did it with Ben Scully, where Ben would just do the innings by himself. So I might do, or Mario might do innings one and two, and I would do three and four, but we never interacted on the air. We just did it by ourselves. And the second year, they changed that up a little bit. We alternated innings and we were on the air together, but we were two, uh, Mario and I were two guys that came up through the minor leagues at different places. He had been in Tucson and different places, Quad Cities, I think, and uh, worked his way up to the major leagues. And they wanted a play-by-play guy and they wanted a former player, a color analyst after my second year. They were like, Hey, we want to do something different here. We like you guys together, but since Mario has been here longer, we're going to keep you or keep Mario. And, you know, we love your work, but if we can help you with, you know, somewhere else down the line, you know, we're happy to do that. And so what they did was they eventually let me go after two years. They didn't exercise their option. But in the meantime, I've been contacted by Jeffrey Loria and I reached out to him and he reached back to me and he said, if they don't renew your contract, I'll bring you to Montreal. I'll hire you up there. We'll just put you, give you some innings up there. And I thought, great. So um, as it turned out, when it got to be springtime, the um, owner of the Expos, of course, Jeffrey Loria, wanted the, uh, the revenue stream. Most teams uh, get paid by the media outlet for the rights to carry the game. So what was happening in Montreal was the Expos were paying the station in Montreal to carry the games. And Jeffrey wanted to reverse that. And so they got into a dispute, both on the English broadcast and the French broadcast. And right up to the start of the season, they had neither broadcast set. They couldn't come to an agreement. And so eventually they got the French broadcast on, but the English broadcast didn't come on for a couple of months. During, those, during that season until finally they settled. But by that time, the door had closed on my opportunity there. So that's how I kind of wound up 
moving back to Champaign where I grew up. And I thought, well, I'll just do some radio work for the time being. And then I will, uh, we'll see what develops, you know, maybe something will change in Montreal or whatever was turned out. Of course, the team got moved or sold and then eventually moved to Washington, DC and, and Jeffrey wound up owning the, the Florida Marlins. So that's kind of how that fell through. And then I came back to Champaign. And that obviously ended up being a very fortunate, uh, move for you because shortly after that Illinois job opened up, you were from, I believe about 18 miles away from Champaign, Illinois growing up and it was a great fit, but how did the process of landing that opportunity come about? Yeah, it was even actually even closer than 18 miles. It was about eight, uh, between the, between where I grew up in Tolono, Illinois, I used to go to all the games as a kid with my dad and, and football and basketball games. So I was a frequent visitor to the stadiums and and a, and a big fan growing up so that was that was exciting but uh, Jim Turpin had done the games in Champaign for about 30 years on various a couple of different networks and uh, so he was about to retire when I arrived I arrived in Champaign in the spring of 2000 and the general manager who was a guy I did not go to high school with but was from the same high school that I was he was about five years ahead of me uh, Steve Cacciatore and he then hired me on at the radio station, uh, just because, you know, he, he knew of my background and he wanted me on the air as quickly as he could get me, put me on wherever he could find a place to put me. And so he hired me and then the university of Illinois, uh, folks heard me on the air and they started asking Stevie, who, who's, who's this guy you hired? Where's he from? You know what? So they kind of gave the background and eventually I met with Ron Gunther, who was the athletic director at Illinois. And he said, by the way, Jim Turpin's about to retire in uh, the fall of, well, the spring of 02 will be his last year, 0102. He said, um, we'd like to have you come on as our play-by-play guy if if you're willing to consider that. And I'm thinking, well, absolutely. Uh, that would be fantastic. And so Jim retired in the spring of 02. And in the meantime, between 2000 and 02, he actually had some health issues. Uh, in that particular time period, he's still with us. He's 85 now, but he was he was he was in some serious trouble at that point. He couldn't travel to several games, and so as it turned out, I got to fill in for him anyway, even before being the voice. Which, in a sense, was kind of an audition. I had a chance to audition for the job with a few games here and there, especially road games, because he couldn't travel. And then eventually, uh, Jim retired in '02, and then uh, when that time happened, they. Uh, worked it out that I would become the the full-time play-by-play voice and here we are 15 years later I'm still doing it and you came on board at a fun time in the history of Illini athletics of course just before the uh, runner-up finish in the NCAA tournament with Darren Williams and uh, who were the other guys on that team D Brown I remember I think yeah, but D Brown, uh, James Augustine, Roger Powell uh, was in that group. And of course, Darren Williams, you had Darren D Luther had all three of those guys played significant time in the NBA. Darren Williams is still playing, of course, for the Cavaliers. Uh, D Brown had a little time in the NBA with Utah and then a lot of time in Europe playing. Uh, Roger Powell played some very little in the NBA, but eventually is now an as- assistant coach at Vanderbilt for Bryce Drew. And then uh, James Augustine played a lot overseas uh, for several years, and I think he's still playing, actually. But uh, that team in uh, 04, 05 was, I think, my, let's see, 02, 03 was my first year. So a couple of years in, 
uh, when that happened. We had some good teams leading up to that. Uh, worked with Bill Self, of course, before he went to Kansas. And Bruce Weber took over as the coach in uh, 03, 04, and then 04, 05. We made the uh, terrific run to the to the championship game. And so, yeah, that was a good time to be calling games. And there was a and you almost get to where you assume that you're always going to be at that level, you know. And in recent years, we have not been. So we're trying to get back there. What were some of the most memorable moments from that run that you look back at and just say, wow, I was a part of that? Well, I, you, at the end of the 3 4 year, they had made a run to the Sweet 16 before they lost to Duke. And uh, they rattled off a bunch of wins in a row at the end of that year. They won the Big Ten title outright for the first time since 1952 when they beat Purdue in Mackey Arena on a last-second layup at the at the buzzer. Uh, to win it over Purdue, and and then they went strong into the NCAA tournament and wound up losing to Duke in the uh, in the Sweet 16 in Atlanta. So you knew, and all of that team was coming back. So you knew the next year might be pretty special. And then they got off to a great start. And early on, three or four games in, they played Gonzaga in Indianapolis, and they just absolutely blew them out. Uh, and then they played Wake Forest, who at the time was number one in the country and they came to Champaign and Illinois blew them out. It wasn't close. And then they were number one the rest of the year. And so that was pretty memorable start to that year. And, and they rattled off, you know, 29 in a row before they lost uh, a couple of the wins were against Wisconsin. They won at the Kohl center. And when everybody thought that might be their first loss. And then they eventually lost their first game, uh, the last game of the regular season. Ohio State uh, playing in Columbus and uh, Thad Mata's first year, and Ohio State was on probation. They couldn't go to the postseason, so this was their postseason game, and we led for most of the game by double figures, and at the very end, they caught us, and then uh, Matt Sylvester, who is infamous in Illinois history because he uh, beat us with a three-pointer with about four seconds left. Uh, We had a last shot and missed it, and our winning streak was over at 29, and Went on to, to win the Big Ten tournament pretty easily and then made the run all the way to the championship game. And, of course, the the Arizona game that everybody talks about here, which is still one of the more amazing games I've ever called or been a part of as Illinois was down at the Allstate Arena in Rosemont, which is near O'Hare Airport, uh, playing Arizona in the Elite Eight game, down 15 points with four minutes to go, uh, rallied to tie it to send it to overtime, and win it in overtime, 90 to 89, and uh, just an amazing comeback in the last four minutes to to get to the final four, and then beating Louisville in the in the semifinals, and then battling Carolina after falling behind big, uh, battling all the way back to wind up falling short by five points, but uh, had the game tied with about two minutes to go, and and uh, that was just uh, several of the big moments of that particular year. You also got the opportunity to broadcast a Rose Bowl game. What was special about that experience? Well, and I, it's funny because I had done a game at the Rose Bowl. Uh, Illinois played UCLA in a game that was obviously not the Rose Bowl itself, but in the Rose Bowl Stadium, UCLA's home stadium. And the game turned out to be a dog. I mean, it was 6-3 to three was the final. It was a terrible game. Uh, it was a fun place to broadcast from, but it didn't have, you know, it lost its fervor because the game was so bad. I mean, it just wasn't a very good game, and so that was the first time I'd done a game there. Uh, the Rose Bowl was a, was a remarkable year in the sense that Illinois had been just awful two years earlier, and then 
pretty good the next year under Ron Zook. And then that third year, they, they took off. They rattled off several wins uh, after an early loss to Missouri and then had to go into Columbus and beat Ohio State uh, to keep their bowl hopes and their Big Ten championship hopes alive. As it turned out, Ohio State, uh, who they beat that day was number one, but Ohio State wound up in the bowl championship series after all, just because of some other games that happened uh, in the next week or two. But that year, just beating Ohio State, uh, Juice Williams and his famous uh, going for it and convincing Coach Zook to go for it on fourth as inches at his own 30 in the, in the horseshoe, which was you know as loud as ever at that point. Uh, for the number one team and able to convert that fourth and inches and then dr- run out the clock over the next eight minutes to basically uh, seal the game and never let Ohio State have it. And so that was a, a key point in that year. And then just going out to the Rose Bowl and experiencing it and all the pageantry and all the the excitement that goes with it uh, was just a, a grand experience. I mean, they do a terrific job. And and obviously, you you know, you're part of history when you're out there. Now, the game didn't turn out so well, and we were afraid it might not just because uh, USC was so good that year with Pete Carroll and some of the guys they had, and, and um, they just had more weapons than we did, and, and we knew that going in. And But it was still a great experience to be out there. So one of the things that I find interesting about kind of your path is you were at a lot of very different places in the country with very different kind of just cultures and paces of life. You were in Virginia, you were in Oklahoma City, you were in California, and you were in Illinois. Was it ever difficult to fit into just the culture and the way of life of a part of the area that you were in? Oh, I don't know. Um, California was probably the most unique because I never lived out there. I'd only, you know, read about it and seen it and uh, didn't really ever get close to it in the minor leagues. So, that was probably the the biggest adjustment just to the lifestyle. But, you know, Virginia, I went to school in Virginia. I got used to that by the time I was doing minor league baseball out there. I'd been out there five or six years. Um, in Oklahoma City, that was a lot like Illinois in the sense that it was in the Midwest. Uh, you know, the land was flat. Uh, you know, it was, it was wide open prairie. It was hot. It was hotter than Illinois usually, but hotter and, and windier. But you know, just uh, that didn't take a big adjustment to get used to that. And then, uh, you know, the, the California experience was different and then coming back home. So, um, I don't know. And the major league experience was just a whole different level of, of experience to gain and the kind of pressure that you're under. You know, I remember the guy that hired me in Anaheim, you know, he hired me and he hired a new Spanish broadcaster and, and there was a couple other guys they hired that year. Uh, in some turnover. And I remember in the office, you know, telling us, Hey, you guys are good. You've made it. You're good enough to get here now get better. And that was an interesting challenge. You know, you think, man, I made it to the big leagues. I'm good. Uh, and he, he shall never forget it. He said, now get better. And I thought that was an interesting way to put it. And I've always remembered that. So, you know, getting used to reaching that level, performing at that level at a high level and yet getting better along the way was, uh, something that that taught me while I was out there. What did you do to get better? Oh, I think just pay more attention to, um, to detail my delivery, uh, what I was putting on the broadcast. You have to remember when I was in uh, Oklahoma city, I was by myself. I did everything. I did engineered it. I did all the score updates. 
I did all the play-by-play. I did the color. I did everything. So it was, you know, adjustment, A, to work with a partner, uh, also to uh, not repeat everything my partner did, you know, to be different from what he said on the air. Um, Just the um, intertwining of um, less, like, statistics, because when you're by yourself, you're throwing in everything you can find, Uh, more storylines rather than uh, the statistical part, which is good, but I think you can overcook it. So I think learning not to do that. Uh, on a consistent basis, but still be informative. So I, I learned a lot. Um, I learned some things, some things that they, um, you know, they would uh, tell me, say, hey, why don't you uh, think about this? I'd kind of weigh it with a grain of salt and say, nah, I don't think so. But there were other things that I was open to. said, hey, I realize I need to get better um, because I had done it long enough. I sort of knew what worked for me and what didn't. And um, there were always people offering suggestions, especially at that level. To, you know, to try to, you know, it's like when you're in the major leagues and a new hitting instructor comes in, hey, you know, you need to try this or think about that. Well, you need to be open to it, but you also need to be careful not to get away too far from who you are and what you do, because that's what got you there. So I think there's kind of a balance there, and I kind of learned what that balance is and and not to just listen to everything everybody says, every critique, or you just wind up chasing your tail and, and going in circles and not getting, you know, you get worse. One of another thing that I found interesting about your path is usually when you see people advancing up the ladder, so to speak, they're the baseball guys are usually career baseball guys because you have to move up through the minors. There's certainly other exceptions, but you don't see a whole lot of people go from baseball to a football and basketball job. Why were you able to make that work? Well, part of it is I had to uh, because the the major league job, you know, after two years uh, was not renewed and the other one fell through. So I kind of the part of that was out of necessity. Uh, part of it was I was in my hometown, so I was familiar with the Illini. I was familiar with the programs. I knew the history. I had grown up orange and blue, you know, cheering them on in the stands. And so for me, that was an easy adjustment. And I had done enough uh, high school football over the years and those various stops I had made. I had uh, done a lot of college basketball in various levels. And so I knew I could do the sports. Uh, it was just a matter of, you know, combining the my love of the Illini and what I grew up with, with what I had been doing for, you know, 20 years prior. So uh, and for me, it was a fairly easy adjustment. I I didn't see it as a real difficult one. But I will be honest, I thought, you know, at the time, you just never, this shows you, you never know. I thought when I made it to Anaheim, that's where I was going to be for the next 30 years. I mean, I thought I'm set. And, um, and it didn't turn out that way, but it actually turned out better. What are a couple of your broad, what I like to call broadcast horror stories? Times where something just went horribly wrong during a broadcast, whether it was just something weird, circumstantial, or where, equipment was going wrong or where the broadcast location was just awful. Give us a couple of those from your long career. Oh, I think one that uh, comes to mind, we were down in uh, New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans, of course, used to be the, uh, well, it is the AAA team. I don't know who they're with now, but they used to be with the Brewers. And they used to be the team in Denver that moved out, of course, when the Rockies moved in. But down in uh, New Orleans, they had, like a lot of places, they had like uh, staggered fences that they would use where you'd have one fence with advertising on it. And there was a second level fence that was behind the first fence. 
and the rules were in those situations uh, were that if it, the ball, if a ball that was hit hit that back wall, it was a home run. If it hit the lower wall, it was a double. So that was, you know, or it could be a double or triple or whatever. But if you cleared the first wall, it hit the back wall, it was a home run. So we were, we had called the games like that for a couple of years, you know, whenever we went there to play. And, and during the course of the game somewhere, um, and they didn't bother to tell us this on either radio end, but they changed the ground rules at midseason. And so they ruled now in New Orleans that in this park, both teams agreed, and I mean, any team that came in agreed that, okay, if it hits the, the back wall, um, it's a double and bounces back into play. It's a double. And they didn't tell us that. And so, of course, this particular game, we come down to the very end of the game, and wouldn't you know, um, a guy for New Orleans, the home team, hits a ball off that wall, and I'm calling it a home run because that's what I understood it to be. Turned out it was only a double, and the game was over regardless, but I honestly did not know what the score was because the scoreboard said one thing, found out during the timeout that the rules had changed, and then nobody told us. And so it was just mass confusion. I have no idea. You know, the winning hit scores, the winning run, I have no idea what the score is. So that was uh, that was interesting. Um, we had a game which turned out okay, but we had a game at Nebraska in football a couple of years ago where now, as you know, they're doing these um, different type uniforms. Uh, sometimes they'll go all black or all red or whatever. And if you're doing a football game, you're way up high way up high at the top of the stadium and the other couple of years ago in uh, Lincoln, it was a night game and they wore these all red jerseys with like silver metallic numbers. And fortunately I use a spotter for my broadcast that helps me with the binoculars and pointing out who makes tackles and who makes catches. And I was lucky I had him because I didn't see a number all night long. You could not read them. I had people down on the sideline tell me later they were down there and they couldn't read them. It was impossible to tell an eight from a six from a zero and, or, you know, a two from a five or whatever. And so I relied on my spotter the whole night. And unfortunately he got everything pretty much right from what I could tell. Cause whatever he pointed at, I said, so those are a couple of uh, stories, you know, broadcast locations are here or there. Um, I've had um, in Dallas, I did some minor league hockey for Oklahoma city. We played at Dallas at the old state fair Coliseum, which is right next to the cotton bowl. And, they would have you uh, in the end above the uh, net. And so when the hockey players were on your end, it was great. But you had to watch out for uh, shots where the hockey puck would ricochet and fly up and fly over your head on a ricochet. Uh, so that was interesting. And then we did a game uh, for Illinois and Northwestern a few years ago where we played at Wrigley Field in Chicago. And they ran the field from the third base dugout to right field, but it was too short. They deemed it the day of the game too short, too dangerous for players to have an end zone right up against the wall at Wrigley. And so they um, did it where you had to play one way. You could only go one direction uh, when scoring on offense. And so that was interesting. It made it tough on the one end when the action was at the other end. And, I, and when they were on your end, it was terrific. And I think they still kind of have that a situation I'm told for like the pinstripe bowl at Yankee stadium. It's the same kind of thing where you're on one end and they're on the other. And that can be tricky at times. And a lot of times in this day and age, and I've heard NFL guys talk about it, the, the radio positions kind of get 
shoved around to different uh, positions because they're trying to sell suites and trying to sell seat locations, and uh, some of the broadcast sites aren't that great anymore. Who are some of your favorite broadcasters to listen to, uh, maybe that are under the radar that we haven't heard of, uh, on a day off where you're not calling a game? Well, I think most of the guys I like are guys you would recognize. I really enjoy Al Michaels. I think he's excellent at what he does. He just injects the right enthusiasm, and the pacing is really terrific. Uh, so I really enjoyed him. I grew up listening to Jack Buck. I always thought he was very understated. I think people on the coast focus on the Phil Rizzutos or the Vin Scullys or whatever. But here in the Midwest, I mean, uh, Jack was uh, what everybody listened to. And he just had that understated style but it was exciting and when you listen to some of the the Ozzie Smith home runs in the playoffs and the Kirk Gibson home run to beat the A's in 1988 you know the excitement he had with those I can't believe what I just saw and he just had the ability to to hit the right note I think football wise uh, one of my uh, favorites was uh it still is Brad Sham who does the Cowboys I I just I listened to him a lot when I was working in Oklahoma City because there was an affiliate that uh, carried the games down there because Barry Switzer was a coach of the Cowboys for a while. And and just listening to Brad, how he called a game, the position on the field, he made every play uh, exciting to follow and listen and make you want to listen more. So um, I just enjoy his uh, his play-by-play. Tom Brenneman, Marty Brenneman, uh, those are guys actually got to know Tom a little bit, uh, just enjoy his work and uh, so those are some of the ones that I, I just find really appealing that um, that I like to listen to. All right. If anybody wanted to reach out to you or ask you a question about sportscasting or anything like that, how would they do so? Well, probably the best way is uh, they can email me if they'd like. Uh, it's uh, bbarn64 at hotmail.com. be the best way to reach me. And uh, just send me an email if you want to send me some stuff to listen to. I'm always happy to do that. I love listening to uh, other broadcasters' work. I've got a lot. In fact, I got three or four in the in the queue now that are waiting that I'm going to listen to, and and they can uh, send me a link, and and I'll be happy to listen to it and critique it because that's kind of what helped me when I was first getting started was um, having guys listen and give me some ideas and pointers and encouragement. And I know how big that is when you're at a young age and you're wanting to get started. Uh, you know, to have somebody give you some ideas of things to think about, it really helps. Well, once again, we are talking with Brian Barnhart. He is the University of Illinois football and basketball broadcaster, Big Ten broadcaster here on the Say the Damn Score podcast. And Brian, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming on. Hey, no, thanks for having me and uh, appreciate the being able to kind of share the story a little bit of uh, my journey. And I know it's similar to a lot of people's and uh, I've been very fortunate. And they always say when you uh, find something that you really like to do, you never feel like you've worked. And I don't think I've really felt like I've had a job and and worked at one for uh, over 30 years. So I've had a lot of fun. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to take a minute if you're listening on iTunes and give us a review and a rating. It really helps the podcast. Also, make sure to subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or you can follow me on Twitter at Radio underscore Logan, or follow the podcast on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Say the Damn Score. Thanks for tuning in, and next time you're on the air, make sure to Say the Damn Score just a little bit more.